Hello, and welcome to the Parent Survival Kit from Surviving to Thriving in Your Household. My name is Gene Schwalen. Next to me, as always, is my beautiful bride, Dr. Sonia Schwalen, pediatric expert psychologist, nationally certified school psychologist. And today, we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Erica Cooper with us. So, Dr. Schwalen, why don't you go ahead and give us the introduction? Dr. Erica Cooper is a provisionally licensed psychologist and psychology postdoctoral fellow at Next Steps Worldwide, and she's actually under my supervision. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I'm really excited to be here. We are glad to have you. And this is going to be a really exciting episode, uh, something that parents really need to know, uh, whether it's your kid or a friend of your kids. We see that a lot as well. We're going to talk about diagnosing delinquency. And what does that mean? So, you know, you get a truant letter in the mail, your kid hasn't been going to school or skipping school and now I have to go to court. Is that delinquency? Is that what we're talking about here? So that that really is, you know, what we used to use the term for was understanding when a kid is engaging in some behaviors that we as society have deemed not okay, right? So not showing up to school, skipping school, um, maybe like smoking cigarettes, things like that. Um, but that term delinquency has really been used uh, in a variety of settings and it means a whole lot more now than just truancy or just those kind of low level behaviors that many of us engaged in as teenagers or adolescents. Um, so it was really used to uh, describe kids in the foster care system at one point in time. Um, and has really become a much more stigmatizing uh, kind of word. And so the field has really pushed, when I say the field, I mean research and, you know, understanding of adolescents and the normative behaviors that they have, um, like occasionally skipping school, you know, like um, kind of testing boundaries, that type of thing. Maybe um, in the bathrooms. Yeah. <laughs> Nowadays, uh, that's what yeah. it is. A lot of yeah. that going on, I hear, so. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, and so th the field has really been pushing to try and use different terms because the word delinquent has so often been applied to more marginalized groups of children, um, affixing this kind of label to them that uh, really sets the stage and the path for them to move much more easily into the criminal justice system as adults. Uh, and so we're trying to use the term justice involved youth now. I know that's a really long term. <laughs> justice involved youth. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we've talked before about labeling and whatnot. We've done numerous episodes. We've done some education or I mean, let me rephrase, not me. You have done some education with churches regarding mislabeling or not labeling and, uh, and we have parents that we see on Facebook all the time that they're labeled their kids ODD, you know, diagnosing delinquency, which ultimately ODD leads to, I would, I would guess, right? I don't know. I mean, do you know what he just said? <laughs> ODD leads to delinquency and maybe delinquency is the diagnosis of ODD, but that's exactly what we're here to talk about but today. So I'm really glad you threw all that out. ODD <laughs> is misconduct or whatever it's called down the road. And then all of a sudden you're in the criminal system, you're in jail. Yeah. Yeah. So and don't and label me ODD, please. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what we find is a lot of kids who do end up in the justice system have been provided with uh, the diagnosis of Oppositional Defiant Disorder, ODD, um, as Jean was saying, or Conduct Disorder. Um, and, you know, the those diagnoses, although they are helpful in describing uh, specific behaviors that we see children and adolescents engage in, in terms of, like, um, you know, age-inappropriate 
um, temper tantrums effectively or fighting, truancy, that kind of thing. Um, they, they also are not necessarily helpful in understanding the basis of the behavior. Why is it happening? What is the function of it? Um, and, and so sometimes, you know, we find kids do come into the justice system who have those, uh, those diagnoses, but also leave the justice system with those diagnoses uh, because they are still not getting to the root of the issue. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, and, and it kind of, you know, takes me back to, like, as a parent, who are my kids hanging out with? You know, we have a 17-year-old, and if I know of a kid that was arrested or had some um, misconduct for some reason, do I want my kid to hang out with this, with this kid? So, I mean, I could sit here and label this kid all day long, that this kid's a bad kid, you know, for something that maybe did happen one time, you know, but is that really how this kid really is all the time? So what is the behavior behind all of it? Is it, a, is it you know, something that's going to continue to go on? Um, is there a pattern there or is there not? So, Right. And, yeah, it, it, it is really hard as a parent because your initial, your gut instinct, or even as, you know, someone who just cares for a child, like I, I have plenty of nieces and nephews, right? When they go through that stage in life, your gut instinct is, oh, I don't want them hanging out with bad kids. I don't want them to be you know, peer pressured into these behaviors. Um, and so you do really care and, and you don't want them hanging out with bad kids. Um, but I, I think where some of the misunderstanding comes is that a lot of these kids who are involved in the justice system, uh, they might be coming from backgrounds where they have to engage in those behaviors. There's no choice, right? They're, they're unfortunately in homes where um, they're not being cared for. And so they're not being watched, they're not being supervised. And they end up hanging out with older kids who maybe are involved with other stuff or maybe involved with drugs or things like that. Um, and it's so natural to then become involved in other things. I mean, not even natural, but even a lot of pressure that if you don't, then there could be actual physical harm that can be done um, if, if not, right? Right, yeah. That's a really good point as well. So, you know, what you just said of like being a parent and worrying about your own child, maybe being negatively influenced by having friendships or being in a circle of kids that may be us. What, what's the term? Justice involved youth. Justice, you know, hanging out with justice involved youth, right? I was just going to say delinquent again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad we're doing this episode. So the... The one thing that I, you know, what you said really reminds me of is also just, you know, being a school psychologist in the state of Texas, there is even more so in, I think, in this state than maybe in other states, a stigma around being justice-involved youth, okay? To the, to the point where if a child has, you know, ODD type of behaviors or conduct disorder type of behaviors. So let's really break that That's down first. Find that for us because it's really important. So Dr. Cooper kind of touched on it when she, she gave some examples of, you know, maybe getting into fights or having um, inappropriate temper tantrums, you know, when we say inappropriate, maybe you got like a 16 year old kid completely acting out in a way that's not appropriate for his age, you know, cause he's he or she should by that time have enough skills to be able to communicate appropriately. Right. So that's when we say inappropriate, it's, it doesn't match with like their developmental stage. Um, but even, uh, non-compliance or difficulty with authority, um, defiant behaviors, um, the extreme would be, uh, destroying property, um, doing things like that. Like, even to the point of like um, fitting into the criminal kind of category. 
So doing things like that, did you want to add something? Yeah. So I just wanted to add that it, it can also be incredibly easy to receive a diagnosis of conduct disorder. Um, so conduct disorder is actually uh, a disorder that we commonly think of as a precursor to something called antisocial personality disorder. Um, so a lot of people associate antisocial personality with um, like psychopaths. Right, or psychopathy. Um, and conduct disorder, there's 15 possible criteria and you only need three, like three of those behaviors to be diagnosed with that. And it's things like fighting, skipping school um, at an earlier age, um, you know, things like that, that can, they are to some extent developmentally normative. Right. And so using the diagnosis of conduct disorder can inadvertently or unintentionally, right, over-pathologize a child who may just be doing some things that are just normal for their age. So there's always that consideration. And so we're always real careful from a school psych perspective, just I want to speak to that a little bit here, to go down that route and, and maybe slap that diagnosis on to a child because in the school system, unfortunately, it can be considered as, you know, more of like a hopeless situation or there's really no services that we can provide here because this person is just what we would call socially maladjusted. So what I want you to do really quick is we've talked about this in a previous episode a long time ago. So when you say ODD, um, one thing you mentioned a long time ago that kind of stuck with me is that the kid is doing this behavior and really just has no, um, doesn't feel guilty. There's no guilt behind it. So they just do it and it's like, all right, no big deal. And I can move on and I can do it again tomorrow. I don't feel bad for it. You know, that's really more ODD. Is that, is that not accurate? It's more conduct disorder. So there's kind of like, we're using these terms. There's, there's oppositional defiant disorder and that's characterized by someone who's oppositional and defiant. Right. And so typically we'll see that diagnosis in kids of all ages, okay? It's very easy to categorize behaviors even in young kids who might be oppositional and defiant. They're throwing tantrums. They're not listening. But it's really just all behavioral, right? And then we can see those same types of behaviors in older kids. Conduct disorder is usually the one that is associated with having no remorse, right? Yes. And that's what I was talking about. So there's a, that element of, you know, maybe lighting an animal on fire and not feeling bad about it. You know, that's kind of what Dr. Cooper was um, alluding to when she said that's more of a precursor to antisocial personality disorder. Okay. So I think the point we're trying to drive home is that all of those labels really just get at the behaviors that we're seeing, but not really the why behind the behaviors. So all kids, for the most part, you know, they need love and affection and supervision. It's like that Maslow's hierarchy, just like basic needs being met. And in situations where basic needs are not being met, or sometimes when there's extensive trauma or something that someone has gone through, there can, th there can be a lot of acting out that happens with kids. Because also developmentally, children don't have a way to narrate their experiences. They're just not cognitively there yet. And if you think about it, most adults don't really effectively narrate their experiences or their emotional experiences. And so kids show us how they feel through the way that they behave. So we have the wrongfully accused or the wrongfully labeled in some cases. Um, you know, because you hear stories of kids, you know, this kid's going out and she's or he's stealing things, you know, from a store. And it's not because they really want to steal something or even need to steal something. They could have... Uh, putting money in their pocket as an example, but 
they're doing it as a behavior for attention. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of that that happens. There's a lot that we've talked about even with, um, um, with kids and sexting and, and pornography and whatnot, and kids can actually get a, um, a criminal record from some of these things based on a circumstance that they didn't really have any idea of really, you know, what the circumstances could be by doing it, and then all of a sudden there's something that comes up, they have a criminal record, and now they're diagnosed delinquents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I think another situation that um, particularly a, a few years ago really happened. So just to give some background, um, I actually did some clinical work at a juvenile probation department uh, here in the state of Texas. And so my role there was to conduct assessments on children or adolescents who were coming in who had recently received a charge or who the, the juvenile probation officer felt it would be useful for uh, for them to have an assessment to determine what was going on and what kinds of treatment um, or things on their probation plan would be helpful. Um, and I worked there at the right at the time that the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting happened in uh, Florida. Uh, and following that uh, that shooting, we saw a humongous increase in the number of um, arrests and detentions of of youth for something called terroristic threat. So terroristic threat is a criminal charge here in the state of Texas, as well as several other states. And basically what it means is that you said something aloud in front of someone uh, that could be perceived as a threat. And it can be classified as a misdemeanor, as a felony, so different degrees of seriousness of that, of that charge. Um, but what we were finding is that so many kids would make an offhanded comment they did not mean it. They really just weren't thinking. They were kind of being your typical teenager of, you know, saying something that they shouldn't have said. Or even being funny in the case. Yeah, you know. trying to be funny. Um, and, you know, they said something. Uh, their friends reported it because, you know, everyone was stirred up. Everyone had a lot of um, emotion surrounding these experiences and still do. Um, and then the kid gets charged. And so what happens is they're brought into detention. They stay generally at least a couple of nights until they can have their next hearing, or their first hearing, I should say, um, at which time the judge decides whether to release them or not to their parents. Um, they're placed on probation uh, in the interim until they are what's called adjudicated delinquent. So that term's coming up again, right? And once they are adjudicated delinquent, they are still um, on probation potentially. So it depends on the charge, so what will happen from there, how long that probation is, what kinds of things they'll be required to do. But uh, generally, it's at least six months to a year that they're on probation, having to come in weekly for probation visits, um, having to do random drug tests potentially, having to, uh, the department I worked at um, was more mental health conscious, and so they did have counseling, they had family counseling available. Unfortunately, not all departments have those resources or that mindset really, um, and so it kind of varies on what kids might have to do. But again, we just saw this gigantic increase in, in how many children were being charged with terroristic threat uh, when they really didn't mean it at all, uh, and now they're on probation for a year. Pretty yeah. serious stuff, and it can be, it can be overwhelming for families. It can, it can rock their world. It can be embarrassing. I mean, there's a slew of emotions that family members and families as a whole can go through. It can rock the parent-child relationship when something like that happens. I mean, can you speak to some of that? Like, what would you see in terms of how it would affect families? Yeah, I mean, a lot of, a lot of parents were really upset. They felt really 
um, disappointed in their child, but they're also having the added stress of having to take their child to court hearings now, to probation visits. Well, and the cost of attorneys and everything else. Yes, the the cost of that, you know, probation fees, um, you know, even in the adult system, there's a lot of talk, I think, recently about that, but, but that falls on the parent. (laughs) <laughs> because the child can't be responsible for it, right? They're 14. Um, and so then, you know, parents just have this added burden suddenly, financially, time-wise, to take off of work. Um, meanwhile, trying to also deal with a kid who might be evidencing some of these behaviors that we were talking about, right? Might be a little oppositional, might be defiant, because there is something else going on. Yeah, well, I can see how it can affect the relationship, you know, just you know, parents automatically buying into the charge, you know, as an, as an example, um, or now they're, the, the parents are labeling the kid as this, and then that's how they're treated from, you know, moving forward. Um, I know of, you know, examples of parents saying, you know what, you can just, I want, I'm going to leave you in jail for a few nights, make you learn your lesson. And, you know, what I know from experience, from friends, from family members as well, that when you're around those type of people in those settings, uh, this, one, you know, this kid may be wrongfully accused or diagnosed uh, delinquent when really there's not a whole lot of other background supporting that they really should be there. Um, just birds of a feather flock together. So when you're in that setting, I mean, you learn things uh, in, juvenile, in juvenile, in jail, and, you know, that that's where it all comes together. So you're going to have kids exposed to these things that do you really want them exposed to those things uh, as a juvenile especially? And the answer is no. You know, not for me as a parent, but so many parents will say, hey, I'm going to leave you there for a few days, learn your lesson. What are you really teaching them? Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of institutionalization um, of of children, uh, of adolescents within those settings. So you are expected to do what needs to be done right then. Um, you need to listen. You need to pay attention. Um, if it is time for breakfast, you're eating breakfast. If you don't want breakfast, too bad. Then you don't get your breakfast or you eat it regardless. Um, then it's time to go to school because they um, do have school within uh, juvenile detention programs uh, to ensure that you know kids can still get an education. However, the level at which they're learning generally is much less than what they were learning in the community. Um, so we do see that kids will also regress in terms of academically if they are held in detention for a longer period of time. Um, and you know, I also want to make sure that I speak to the potential for long-term institutionalization with uh, with adolescents. So, unfortunately, if you know kids aren't following their probation rules, they um, are continuing to be defiant or um, engage in criminal behavior. Uh, they can be sent to a long-term juvenile facility. So here in Texas, that's known as TJJD or the Texas Juvenile Justice Department. And, uh, you know, sometimes we have kids there for a year, year and a half, or until they age out, uh, depending on their crime uh, or their offense, I should say. Uh, And so you really see that there's this wide span in how much involvement a child has um, and, you know, the the family that they are in, the uh, income level that they are coming from, really plays a large part in that as well. Now, I have a question that I'm sure most parents are thinking about. Um, At what point does all of this go on to their adult record or follow them into adulthood? That's a really great question. Um, So, you know, technically at age 18, we are considered adults, and so that's when, um, you know, our criminal, 
offenses would normally be held against us. However, in certain states, there is the potential for at the age, starting at the age of 16, generally, uh, for adolescents who commit um, particular types of crimes, such as sexual assault, murder, attempted murder, um, or just serious um, assaults, uh, that they can actually be waived into the adult criminal system. And so what ends up happening is you no longer have that layer of protection of being a child, of being a juvenile. You are now passed into the adult system. You can be held in an adult jail, in a separate area of the jail. Um, and you can face the same type of, uh, of sentences for your crimes, uh, with the exception of the death penalty um, and now life, um, because there have been some Supreme Court cases on that in the 21st century those happened. So it was not <laughs> determined until the 21st century that uh, children cannot be placed um, like on the death penalty. Uh, so it's very recent that we're coming into this understanding that you know our brains are still developing uh, well into our adulthood and uh, that kids make bad decisions sometimes and we need to provide them with grace. We need to provide them with um, services and help through that rather than a simple punishment. Okay. So as a dad, I, I wanna kinda touch base on some things or some reasons why kids may end up in the criminal justice system um, and really what we can do or should do or shouldn't do as parents. Um, so kids experiment with drugs, that's given, we know this. No matter how great we are as parents, you're gonna have kids that do experiment, no matter what you do. Um, you've got kids who experiment with alcohol. Um, I know as a, a parent, I know other parents who they actually enjoy, um, what do you call it, um, a good joint every now and then, what is it, recreational drugs, okay? <laughs> Um, so, or I, or I did it as a kid, I'm fine, nothing happened to me, look at me, I'm good, you know, nothing happened, so my kid needs to experiment, I'm okay with that. Um, that can be with drugs and or alcohol as well. Um, but what happens, kids do, they get caught. And these days, I think there's, you know, there's a lot more risk involved. I think there's a lot more um, ways of getting caught. I think there's a lot more peer pressure. Uh, there's always peer pressure, right? But um, what do we do as parents to kind of maybe help prevent that? How do we approach our kids about these things? And then if our kids are, if we do find out our kids are experimenting with drugs or whatnot, um, do we call the cops ourselves? Because I have some parents who say, well, I'm going to call the cops on you. In fact, we watched a movie uh, the other night called Blow, and the mom called the cops on the, on the kid. You know, it's like, really? You want, you want your kid to go to jail? What do we do as parents? That's a really great question. And I think, unfortunately, parents are oftentimes put into situations that they have no idea how to respond to. Um, and even as like a burgeoning psychologist, I don't know how to respond to it at all. So times. before <laughs> the episode started, I told Dr. Cooper it was okay to say it depends for every, any question that you ask, right? So it depends, <laughs> Jean, <laughs> all right. on the yeah. situation, on the family, the communication level, what parents are comfortable with. And then I always want to put out there, too, that if you need professional recommendations and professional help, it's always okay to call someone, you know, like a psychologist and get a therapist involved and, and really get help with that kind of conversation, too, um, because it really does depend on the family and the situation. Yeah, right. and I, I do, I think a good kind of first step, and this is more of a preventative uh, measure, but 
if you have a relationship with your child where you're open, they communicate with you, um, they're, you know, comfortable talking to you about those things, that's the first step, right, is having that kind of relationship. Now, like, in adolescence, sometimes that gets a little testy at times, and that's okay. It's a very normal part of, of uh, becoming a teenager, but... Um, but having that key relationship where they can trust you, they know that you have their best interests in mind is the number one thing that I think would, would be able to change that situation. Um, and then after that, yeah, getting, getting a psychologist involved, a mental health professional to try and figure out where is this coming from? You know, where are these testing of boundaries um, coming from? Are, are they just kind of normal or are they um, something we really need to be concerned about? Well, and, you know, based on what you just said, I want to ask you, you know, from your experiences, when, um, when kids would, you know, come to you for an assessment, right, in that setting, what would you normally find? What, what are some of the bigger issues that were going on in someone's life? So oftentimes I found that, um, that these kids had had a pretty disruptive childhood. And when I mean disruptive, um, you know, having to kind of be passed from caregiver to caregiver, unfortunately, maybe being placed into the foster care system, um, as well as just a lot of trauma, you know, a lot of um, abuse, whether it be physical, sexual, verbal, or emotional abuse, um, a relationship with their parent that was in some way not positive, uh, where they couldn't trust them, they felt scared, um, or their parents had been more permissive and kind of allowed them to do whatever they wanted to do, and now they were starting to see the consequences of those behaviors. Uh, so I, there was a lot of, of that thing going on. Okay. So I think actually what you just said, you know, a relationship with a parent that was harmful in some way or not helpful in some way. So you gave two examples of that. You said maybe the in the parent-child relationship was hurtful or the child couldn't trust their parent for some reason. And then the other example was permissiveness, right? I think that kind of comes back to what Jean was asking with like, what are parents supposed to do in these types of very specific situations, right? Yeah. And it really comes down to that relationship that you just yeah. outlined. Do you want to talk about um, the findings of warmth and control? I Would think so. Helpful? Let's do that. Well, yes. you, you You're taking my lead very well. Permissiveness <laughs> really quick also. Um, there's a question that comes up often, you know, especially with, we're talking about adolescents and then as kids get into their older teens, mm -hmm. um, even before college, you know, uh, kids go to college and what do they do? They go and they get drunk and they go party and they go out of control, right? And there's a lot of really bad things that can happen um, from that as well, as we all know. So do I let my kid drink you know well if it's at home at least or you know at least it's controlled and i understand what they're doing and i can see what they're doing and they need some exposure before college i mean there's all these things that parents think about and have to go through and you know play back and forth between their you know spouses and again it's just a lot of things parents have to deal with so you know do i want my kid to go out and haze for three days at, in college and, and and potentially you know have some really bad results from that or do i want to really kind of let them get exposure before then well, and part of that is also knowing your, knowing your child, right? Like you're you're the expert on your child. <laughs> you know what what they typically do, how they typically respond to situations, um, and so I I think like part of that is figure it out in that relationship of do I think that my child is going to take this one sip of alcohol and really run with it and it becomes an issue. 
okay, then maybe I'm not going to give them that sip of alcohol, right? Um, but is my child, you know, typically more like reserved, very good with like knowing their boundaries and that type of thing? Okay, having a sip of alcohol may not be, um, you know, like something that, that I think is going to really hurt them. But again, it's, it's in that relationship that I think you have to negotiate that. You have to figure that out. And as the parent, you know, really, really determine what's in the best interest of your child, what's healthy for them at that stage. Okay. Uh, so just to speak to the warmth and control uh, that we had started to touch on, so there's actually a lot of findings in the literature, the research, that indicates there's two kind of dimensions on which we can rate parents, I guess would be the best way of saying that. So warmth is um, how warm the parent is with their child. Do they express love? Do they uh, express affection? Or are they kind of uh, cold, reserved, not really engaging with their child? Whereas control is uh, more about control over their behaviors, expectations of how they are supposed to behave at home um, and at school, those kinds of things. And so generally what the literature finds is that uh, a parent who is high in both warmth and control is, uh, you know, there's generally gonna be going to be better outcomes for kids in terms of reduced delinquency, I'm saying that word again, um, as well as um, better engagement in school, right? Just more engaged um, social outcomes that, you know, kids get more involved in their social groups um, and that kind of thing. And generally where we start to see um, problems is when a parent is low in warmth, so they're not expressing that affection, they're not expressing that love for their child, as well as um, a lack of control. So that permissiveness that we were talking about, uh, that lack over the child's behaviors and what they're doing, those expectations that we have, is when you start to see um, the higher rates of, uh, of criminal involvement, of drug use, all kinds of things. Thank you for outlining that because it always comes down to just the parent-child relationship. Yeah, and communication and, as you mentioned, knowing your child and whatnot. And, um, you know, it made me think also about being even just you said warmth and, and being present. There's so many parents that love their kids to death. They are warm towards them when they are present. Um, they have, you know, maybe a great level of control, structure, discipline in a positive way. But there's not a lot of presence either. And I think that's also something that we've been missing with some of our kids that have been um, institutionalized and whatnot because there's no one present. And they're looking for they're looking for validation and acceptance somewhere, and they're going somewhere else to find it. And you know what this reminds me of is your um, your dad's your dad's campaign. Remember all the research that we did like years ago? Yes about dad's presence in their child's life and really the rates of how many um, kiddos end up in the system or in foster care or whatever and the relationship that actually has with dad either being present or not. Do yeah, you talk it, about it? Yeah, it's, it's really phenomenal. So <laughs> I started, a, it's called Empowered Dad, a mm -hmm. nonprofit, to really just empower dads because one thing that we, what I've found, well, one thing is is that when you have blended family situations, divorces and whatnot, and that can also impact kids, and you see a lot of kids that may be, um, uh, what's the word again? The, the, the new word? Justice involved. Yes, justice involved. <laughs> uh, a lot of that can come also from, you know, breakups in the family and the parents and, and divorces and whatnot. Um, but it was it's really hard for dads to actually get equal visitation, especially in Texas, but really all over the country. Um, which is really sad, um, even those dads that want to fight for it. So um, 
I started a campaign to really kind of fight for just the equal rights for dads because dads deserve that as well. Kids deserve that actually even more than, than dads do. Um, and then looking at just research, it just showed that from, from uh, those who are incarcerated at an adult level, it's like in the 60s or 70 percent where dads were not involved on a regular basis. And we have these numbers, but yet we don't do anything about it when it comes to uh, blended family situations, divorces, and whatnot. So it's really, the numbers are staggering. Well, so and, th and that makes a lot of sense if we think about the amount of control that you can exert as a single parent, right? So if one parent is not present, that puts a lot more responsibility on the remaining parent to watch their child, to still be there after school, to be able to pick them up on time and make sure they're getting places. So yeah, it, it puts a lot more responsibility on them and reduces the level of control that they can exert. Yeah. Well, if you look at it also, you have, you know, 50% of marriages or more in a divorce. So how many kids are out there with divorced parents? Um, how many kids have just one parent because of nev there's never a marriage involved either. I mean, so you've got more kids out there these days who do not have both parents in the same household. And if you really look at just biblically, and if you look at just, just by nature, women, moms are more nurturing and dads are too in some ways, or maybe not sometimes either, but moms are usually the nurturing one and dad is the one that disciplines, right? Uh, and they, you know, work together simultaneously in different ways, but that's usually what you get generalizing, you know, everything. So um, when dads are not involved, there's that control you talked about that's not there. Moms give all the warmth. Uh, and then a lot of times we're trying to overcompensate one or the other because of that single family, you know, uh, uh, situation that we're in. And it's either all warmth, no control, all control, no warmth. How do you balance that? And Well, and I, I think that there can also be um, differences in how much warmth the remaining parent is is providing because now they're stressed and they're having to take so much more on, right? Their, their kids probably also trying to adjust to the new situation of, you know, both my parents aren't here. And so what do I do with this? Um, and, and so it just puts so much extra on that parent that then maybe their level of warmth does like decrease even further because they just don't, they don't have the resources at that point, the emotional resources available. Well, it's been, it's been a real pleasure having you on here. Um, I think there's a lot of great information that parents understood um, are, are received today. Um, so in closing, best tips in an ideal situation, um, if we have a kid that is uh, criminally challenged or <laughs> diagnosed uh, it's not a word. delinquent, it's not a <laughs> uh, youth criminally challenged, um, justice involved youth. There's a lot of, I mean, there's <laughs> so much peer pressure out there. There's so many potential influences that kids have to go through and navigate. <laughs> um, I mean, it's tough. I mean, I can't imagine being a kid these days with some of the things that are going on. Um, parents have more pressure on themselves. You know, we've seen COVID's been here for the last year. I mean, there's so much going on. Um, what is the best thing for a parent to do if they do see some concerns if there is some uh, criminal activity that they're having to deal with, what's the best thing outside of doing the, 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 the necessary things that court orders? What can a parent do to really kind of help their kids and their families at the same time? Talk to your kid. Like, try and figure out what, what's going on, right? Where is this coming from? Um, have you seen behaviors like this in the past? Uh, were those driven by something before? Um, or are these completely new behaviors that you're really concerned about? Has something changed in their world? I mean, 
the past year has been a whirlwind for all of us, but especially kids. Um, and, and so I, I think just the first step is talk to them and try and figure out what's going on. If they're resistant to it, then try and have them talk with someone that you trust, they trust to try and get to the bottom of that issue. Sounds great. And when we talked about before, check out for the neck up. That uh, assessment is so important. We take our kids to yearly checkups, especially in their adolescence uh, years and whatnot. Why wouldn't you do it for their psychology as well? Um, it tells parents a lot. It can definitely give us some great information. Um, it can really make a difference in our kids. So check it for the neck up. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.